At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hello everyone, it's me, Hannah Thurger, and I'll be hosting the Drug Science Podcast today. We have a fantastic guest, Cassandra Frederic, who is the Executive Director of the Drug Policy Alliance, a national non-profit that works to end the war on drugs and ensure that there's justice for the communities who've been disproportionately harmed. She's been incredibly busy, leading on multiple campaigns around policing, the overdose crisis and cannabis legalisation and regulation. She's been an absolute power to get states and countries to rethink their approach to drug policies. And we're incredibly lucky to have her on the podcast. Welcome, Cassandra. Thank you so much for having me. An absolute pleasure. Thank you again. So I thought we could start with you telling us a bit about your journey from growing up in New York and how you progressed to become a drug policy reformer. I am from New York City, Manhattan. My parents are Haitian, so come from the Caribbean island of Haiti. I'm a first generation American and I grew up in the 90s in New York City. So I grew up under Mayor Giuliani, being the first mayor I could really pay attention to and understood. Like I was old enough if someone asked me the question, like who is the mayor of New York? The first person that I would remember would be Mayor Giuliani. Mayor Giuliani was a mayor who ran on a platform of law and order and tough on crime politics and is credited by some as cleaning up New York and making it safer. And some people credit him with militarizing the police force, looking the other way when communities were brutalized by NYPD and eroding the civil rights and liberties of poor New Yorkers and New Yorkers of color. And that very much shaped the way that I saw the world and also how I saw what laws were meant to do. I often saw laws not necessarily as things to keep us safe, but ways to control people and laws that basically get people out of trouble when they hurt people. <laughs> so growing up in New York City, there was a time of great unrest because I think I knew the names of multiple people who had been killed by the police before I knew the 50 state capitals, like in fourth grade. I remember my first police killing in 94, I think I was in second grade. And I had the idea and the concept of one of the community rallies, no justice, no peace. Like that was something that I would hear often. And also because I come from a Haitian background, 
There was a lot of political strife on the island of Haiti that I was also hearing about. So I was like here in the U.S. learning, navigating New York City. And I was also of Haitian American background. And so therefore hearing like how politicization, political violence, democracy, the pursuit of democracy in the U.S., as well as in the island in the Caribbean, and having conversations or being around conversations that were really talking about how communities built power and how they built safety. So I would say that that kind of set a foundation for me as I grew up and had, and it served as a lens for me to look to see the experiences that were happening around me and how I interpreted them and how I translated them were very much through those dual lenses of seeing how political actors moved, how much power they had, how much power communities had, and how it shaped people's ability you know, to be thriving participants in society. With that, I went to college with a focus on labor organizing and did internships doing union organizing and political organizing, community organizing. And then I went to social work school to really learn more about the social welfare state, figure out what are the kinds of programs communities need. And, you know, none of this was related to drug reform in my idea, right? Like I did not wake up one day and be like, I want to be a drug policy reformer. That's not what I was focused on. Though I had like bits and snippets of ways that drugs were impacting my family, I was very much not a drug warrior, but I definitely believe the drug war propaganda that drugs rot your brain. And, you know, if you do drugs, you'll lose your life. And these are things that, you know, you just don't do if you want to stay successful. So drugs were not on my radar. Drugs as like drug policy reform, that's not something I thought about. I obviously thought about what is the social justice work I could do. And when I was in social work school, I got the opportunity to have an internship. The original internship I had fell through. And the internship that they offered me was that at Drug Policy Alliance. And it was the internship I needed to graduate. So it was the internship I took. And <laughs> when I got to Drug Policy Alliance, I had no idea really what the work was. I knew that they had done some form of social justice work around criminal justice reform around drugs in New York. But I didn't really have a concept of the drug war. I didn't really have a concept of drug prohibition. I didn't have a concept of adult drug use that was not problematic or leading into addiction or dependence. Though I had seen examples of people who used drugs in college and were fine or in the same classes as me. So I would say that my pathway to a drug policy reformer was not intentional, but it was something that was I see as a gift. Um, and was something I was able to grow into. And so oftentimes when people talk to me, like, what was your pathway? What made you believe? What made you go into it? Why are you so passionate? I would say that the pathway for me to drug policy reform was that it was presented to me, right? And the more I pulled it apart, the more that I saw that there was an opportunity to build power for people who were poor, people who were of color. There was this real strong disinformation campaign by the powers that be that were lying to communities. 
And then also parts of my family history started to fall into place because I was missing the context of the drug war. And all those things have been motivating factors in like pushing reform forward. And because I, through Drug Policy Alliance, I was able to make policy change in the state that I lived in and that my family lived in. So there was real motivation to get things done because the people that were going to be impacted by my work were the people that I loved and I built with and that I grew up with, like my male cousins, right? My the women in my family, the my friends that have grown up in the same neighborhoods that I have, all those people would benefit from the work. And that was an incredibly motivating factor. I can imagine. And I think phrasing it as a gift, I mean, it was a gift to us. Unfortunate that that first internship fell through and that you ended up with the DPA. So not all our listeners will know about Drug Policy Alliance. Could you give us a little bit of the background and history to the DPA? So Drug Policy Alliance is a U.S.-based organization that focuses on ending drug prohibition. And our primary target area is that of the U.S., though I think it it would be naive to say that our work would only impact the U.S. considering the intentional export, the intentional export of the U.S. drug war around the world. So we are actually working to pay better attention to how our drug policy reforms impact the global community and can also serve as leverage points for our global partners and allies around the world. So DPA was founded in 2000. However, it is a merger of two organizations, Drug Policy Foundation and the Lyndon Smith Center. Drug Policy Foundation was a collective of academics who often met to talk about the harms of prohibition and try to think through like, what is the research? What are the strategies that we can move forward? Lyndon Smith Center was a center founded by Ethan Nadelman um, and was kind of like a think and do tank, right? So they were doing research, but they were also having conversations. The Drug Policy Foundation, I think was founded in the eighties and, or they were very active in the eighties and the Drug Policy and the Lyndon Smith Center was founded in 94. And they merged in 2000 and became the Drug Policy Alliance. And we do federal, state, and municipal level advocacy. We do national and local public education. We build, we do convenings and movement building and trying to build partnerships and allyships and collectives across the state or across the states. And we pass bills. And so we are one of the leading organizations that have led cannabis reform in the States. We're also one of the leading organizations that have led work around overdose prevention and dealing with the overdose crisis. We were intricately intricately involved in the advocacy to get supervised consumption, drug consumption rooms open in New York. Um, Me personally, I led the New York office for several years working on cannabis arrests and racializing the conversation around overdose and passing laws around increasing access to medication and supports. And so DPA does that around the U.S. And we're also building out an intentional strategy about having a strategy to really deal with U.S. foreign policy and drug policy. 
So the DPA then, they really are a national national organisation really trying to make a difference on the war on drugs. So we know that the war on drugs has impacted some communities disproportionately. So what does the DPA think about how these harms can be repaired and the role of reparations in this? How, how can these be repaired? What we know is that people have a limited some people have, most people have a limited idea of what the drug war looks like in action. And the Drug Policy Alliance, we see our role as exposing the intricacy and the infrastructure of what the drug war is. And I think we're spending a lot of time highlighting and platforming the harms that the drug war is doing in multiple arenas that is not just the criminal legal system. So really looking at the way that the drug war has shaped institutions like education or child welfare or housing or immigration or public benefits, right? Looking at all these different systems and saying, it's not that it just so happens that you are precluded from these things. It is that someone made an an intentional decision to create this law. So when the war on drugs is inflicted, people often think that the main enforcers are that of lawyers or judges or police officers or prosecutors. And we're like, "Mm, it's also nurses and doctors and teachers and counselors. It's also your neighbor. It's also your sibling. It's also your parent who are enforcing the drug war in different ways. And some people are complicit in that and they know it and some people are not and they don't recognize it. And so we see our role in the conversation of repairing the harm in exposing what the different levels of harm exist and showing people that in order for us to actually end the drug war, then everyone has to understand what their role is in keeping the drug war in place. And with reparations and reparative justice work in general, you cannot repair what you do not see. You cannot repair what you do not name. And so therefore we are currently, currently our role is intentionally highlighting and naming the kinds of harms that are happening. And I think, you know, we know that as an organization that that's probably the best role for us. The thing that we also want to do is support community-based groups on the ground who will then lead the work to get reparations. And ZPA can play the role of helping with helping with helping people to understand what's going on. You know, I don't think that it would be just to end the drug war and not repair the harms that the drug war has wrought. I do think people are old drug war reparations. And I think one of the things that I've come, and one of the things I have come to now in my analysis around that is that the United States owes reparations to countries around the world, around the drug war, especially places like South America. And our Northern American person, I mean, country of Mexico, So I think it's just such an important narrative and it's really is enforcing a change of narrative, in fact, and it's trying to paint this wider picture. And what you've just touched on is 
need for reparations to other countries is something that's often not discussed in light of the war on drugs. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and why it's so important? The United States has been intentional in exporting their policies. And we see this in the way that we have pushed trade agreements. We have funded the militarization of law enforcement in other countries. We've supported some politicians more than others because of their stance on different things, including their stances on drugs. And these are all intentional decisions that have varying consequences. The other thing that's amazing about it is that we are in violation of international agreements because some of our states have legalized cannabis. And the federal government (laughs) is thinking through what it would mean to regulate cannabis, which would be outside of our international treaties. Like we, we are currently in violation and we do not seem to be on a pathway that would get us out of violation. And yet we still are supporting the larger narrative of drug prohibition. You know, we are only just more recently coming to a place where we are offering soft support for that of cannabis reform in international conversations, lauding, celebrating the decision of President Biden to expunge, you know, create pardons and to talk about descheduling of cannabis. And that's not, re, you know, the international community is paying attention to it, but it's not as if the United States is leading on it. Right. It's not as if the United States is going to other countries and saying, we've done it. You should do it, too. Let's figure it out. Despite the fact that harm is still happening because of these policies. And so as the U.S. is having this, you know, standing at a crossroads about where we are going to be on navigating drug the drug war, the international drug war, there are certain things that the U.S. is starting to shift on. Right. The U.S. internally is talking about descheduling cannabis, regardless if they do it or not. The fact that they are speaking about it has a global impact. The United States is talking more about harm reduction, which people have been waiting for so long to talk about harm reduction as a strategy in navigating drug addiction or dependence. The United States is starting to do that now. But the United States is still talking about the militarization and going after kingpins around substances like fentanyl. And so we are in this moment where the United States is running dual strategies and it doesn't have consistency in the way that it talks to the international community about what their policies are. And it hasn't yet come to the place where the United States is acknowledging the role that they've played in the destabilization of the worldwide drug supply and migration policy, migration patterns that are influenced by the wars on drugs that we have funded and we have instigated in other countries, especially in Latin America. So what would need to change? What does America really need to do to kind of put themselves at the front of that conversation and hold them ha- their hands up and admit their harms that they've had with the war on drugs? I don't think the United States needs to be at the front of that conversation. I think the United <laughs> States needs to be sitting the down. The DPA wow. needs to be. <laughs> well, no, no, this is, I don't even think DPA needs to be at the front. I think the United States has led the conversation on drugs for a really long time and it's gotten us into a lot of trouble. I think if we're having a conversation about 
drug war reparations, if we're having a conversation about changing of United States policy around foreign affairs, around drugs, then we need to be listening to the communities and the countries that we've harmed. Latin America needs to be at the front and saying, this is what the states need to do. This is what we actually need back from the states. Latin American organizers that are doing drug policy reform should be instructing the way that organizations like Drug Policy Alliance do our work around U.S. foreign policy, right? Like y'all need to focus on ending the funding of our policing, doing work on this, right? Too often, and, and I think part of the reason why you're getting this answer from me is because you're speaking to a Black woman from America, right? Where the conversation about, I'm very sensitive and aware of the role that the United States plays in multiple conversations on multiple issues where everyone thinks that everyone should follow the United States. And it's kind of like, well, we haven't really worked. Yeah, it hasn't worked. And, you know, we haven't proved ourselves as being responsible with the leadership. And so who are the people that we all could benefit more if we centered in the conversation? Who are the countries that have lost the most through the drug war? through these international treaties, what do they say need to happen, right? And how do we as American drug policy reformers continue to end the war on drugs in our country, but also shrink the the footprint of the war on drugs, the U.S. export of the war on drugs in other places? And that work should be directed by our partners in the global community. You know, Americans can barely point to other countries on the map. Why should we be in charge of the way the global conversation of the drug war puts is put forward? So we can hope then that with that narrative, we can put different countries at the forefront. There will be change that's pushed forward, change the voices, ensure that those countries are empowered to be able to be at the forefront so we can listen and so we can learn. I mean, the UK at the moment, we've still got a lot of learning, mm. a lot of listening to do. And somewhere maybe we can learn from is New York with the, the recent legalization of adult use cannabis. Can I stop for a second before we go into New York? Oh, yes. I think part of the reason why I think it's so important for us to talk about how we should be centering voices is because so often U.S. drug policy is measured through a rubric of how it is going to impact U.S. people. If we want to end drug prohibition and we want to regulate all drugs, which is the position of the Drug Policy Alliance, right? Then if we do regulation only through a U.S. lens, only measuring it by how it would impact Americans, we will continue to export the drug war globally because the United States doesn't produce all the drugs that it consumes. 
regulation is a conversation that includes the entire pipeline of drug production, manufacturing, cultivation, packaging, delivery, growing. Most of those things are not happening in the United States. And if we create a regulatory model that does not repair the pipeline of the countries that have been supplying the drugs, then we would not have ended drug prohibition. It would have morphed into something else. And those countries are old reparations. And how would our regulatory processes or regulatory reforms be reparative? They wouldn't because we wouldn't have talked to the people that we also need to be a part of the repair. And so when I'm saying now, as we're having the conversation, like who are we centering in the conversations? Who are looking at these U.S. drug policies and pushing forward? What are the international implications? That's because our end goal includes a global solution. Ending drug prohibition in the United States requires global global policies. It requires it. That's why, you know, we can do things in our states, but we also can't do as much without doing federal legislation. And federal legislation kicks off international implications. And so as we have conversations about what reform looks like, what ending the drug war looks like in the United States, if ending the drug war in the United States does not lessen the drug war in other countries, then it is a failure. Yeah, and this this is where it becomes you have to see the bigger picture and you have organisations like Transform who are really trying to understand how you would have these regulated markets in multiple countries and making sure that countries in South America, Mexico are at the forefront of those discussions included because if you're not thinking about those countries at that level, how are you ever going to stop the war on drugs globally. It's just impossible if you don't involve all the countries that are implicated mm. in American drug consumption. There are so many countries implicated in supplying our demand for drugs. And so if we decide that we're going to regulate drugs, if we decide that we're going to decriminalize drugs, then we have to have a conversation about what does it mean to decriminalize the world? So you said that it's the DPA is one of DPA's main objectives, decriminalization. How far do you think different states are in, in America? There's Oregon that have recently decriminalized low level amounts of drugs. Where else do you think will follow next? How successful has it been, in fact? Yeah. Well, I think if you measure us based on how many people are getting ar getting arrested, arrests are down by the thousands, which that is great. Good. If you measure it by our organizations getting resources that they never did before, I would say that also happened. $302 million was just dispersed throughout the state to increase or create infrastructure to provide support for people who use drugs. And it is not easy. And change is not pretty, right? There are a lot of arguments. There are a lot of fights. There are a lot of people who are like, this is taking too long. <laughs> Even though it's literally been like 18 months. <laughs> They're like, this is not going fast enough. This has to go faster, you know? <laughs> but I think one of the things that we see is that it's worth it, that it's shifting conversation. There are multiple states that we are in conversation with, that we're negotiating with, that we're drafting bills with, that we're doing exploratory conversations with, because now Oregon 
has taken that step and it has forced other people to recognize that this is a possibility and one that they might need to walk into the direction of. <laughs> you know, it would be a fool's errand for me to predict which state was next because we're in conversation with multiple states, but Oregon will not be the only. And I think Oregon will not be the only, and we are well on our way to add more states to that. And there are multiple states that are looking at it through legislation. There are states that are looking at it through referendums. There are states, you know, even at the federal level, we have a decriminalization bill and people are having conversations about that. And this is, again, a moment where we get to look at the leadership of other countries in Europe who have decriminalized all drugs before, who have different versions of regulatory systems, and make sure that what we do in the U.S. is something that's replicable for other people and that people get to see and get ex excited and inspired by and keep pushing because sometimes this work can be all-consuming and, you know, it's hard to stay motivated, but we win sometimes. Um, and it's for us to remember that we win sometimes and we you win really have won you have won multiple times just keep on pushing you just got to keep pushing. how do you keep motivated and how do you keep pushing forward and i think the the thing that the opposition has done a good job on is to make us lessen our belief in ourselves because they've done such good work in dehumanizing people who use drugs and people who are part of the drug trade we dehumanize them we villainize them we say they're not a part of community and I think part of our work is reminding ourselves that we are part of community, that we are part of society, that we are, we do deserve the things that we demand. And when we win, it proves that. And when we lose, it also proves that. And I think part of it is just remembering to see ourselves. And, you know, it's been great for me to be outside of the States and hear people react to the work that we've done and to know that it's serving, it, there's a multiplier effect. So taking on the lessons then from Oregon and from countries in Europe like Portugal, what are some of the best approaches for the decriminalization model? I would say that we really think it's important for us to actually decriminalize drug possession and to not create a new, create new sanctions or new hoops for people to jump through that we really do need to divorce drug possession from the criminal legal system. I would also say that it's important in the way that we communicate our work, that we're not just communicating that we're making something not a criminal offense, but that we're also giving people resources in case they do struggle with drug use, right? I think the big thing that we're trying to remind people is that most people who are in possession of drugs or most people who use drugs are not struggling with addiction or dependency. They're just using drugs. And their biggest risk to them is that of the criminal legal system. And it's important for us to remove that risk. Then there are the people who are struggling with drugs and criminalization doesn't work for them either. It actually increases their risk of being hurt. And it also increases the risk of exacerbating whatever dependence or addiction that they have. And so removing criminalization is also super important for them as well. And then I think the other thing that is important for people to recognize is that criminalization is super expensive. People think about all the times like, oh man, you know, 
if we had money, we can have these sorts of resources and this person would need this and they wouldn't have to do that. But we don't have that money because we've invested so much in criminalization. And so what are the opportunities that decriminalization can can present to us that we can take advantage of, that we can leverage in order to build a society that can take care of the people that we love, regardless of their relationship to drugs? So I know we touched earlier on the cannabis reform in New York, and there'll be lots of our listeners who are really interested in cannabis reform in the UK. If we're thinking really about what we'd want to try and incorporate in the UK, so expungement of criminal records, including a taxation system that gives back to communities who've been over-criminalised and impacted by the war on drugs, what would be the key learnings that the UK should implement really from New York or from other places where you've helped to legalize cannabis? One of the most important lessons that we learned was how much cannabis arrests are connected to the culture of policing and that you cannot run a successful or should not run a cannabis reform effort outside of broader policing reform. I think that's one of the things that made, that is one of the things that made the New York campaign so successful was because our work was in community with broader policing reform. And as I mentioned earlier, policing is not just what happens on the street. Policing is what happens in hospitals, in housing, in schools, in social welfare offices. Policing is happening everywhere. (laughs) Drug war policing has no jurisdiction. It's everywhere. And building our campaign in the framework that in that of policing brought us new partners who historically would not have seen cannabis reform as their issue, who would have seen cannabis reform as a luxury issue. When we put cannabis reform in a larger context, people saw themselves and were motivated and saw that cannabis reform could play, could act as a leverage point, as a platform for broader social change. The other lesson that is crucial is that cannabis reform does not end racial disparities. It also does not end biased policing. And so it's important for that to be front and center and part of the conversation because you can't do effective cannabis reform without policing reform. You can do policing reform without cannabis reform, but it won't be as popular. (laughs) And there's a pathway for cannabis reform to set a platform for broader justice that is highly incentivizing for other people to join the drug policy reform cause. And it just deepens your analysis as a cannabis reformer, because then you start to see things more deeply and more in, more complicated, and it's more layered. And when you can see more layers, your policy is better. Because one of the things that the New York policy, part of the reason why people are so excited is because there's so much in there, but there's so much in there because the policy, the cannabis reform work was so baked into broader policing conversation. We couldn't, we didn't want to pick and choose which policing reform we would want. We wanted all of them. And so therefore, 
it made a stronger campaign because more people were standing with us because they weren't just there for cannabis. They were there for housing. They were there for family regulation. They were there for public benefits. They were there for student loans. Like they were there for immigration. And so it played kind of like a, like a link arm effect, right? Like where if they tried to break up the coalition, but the co- there were so many people that were in the coalition, they were able to lock arms and hold the line. So really the UK then needs to make sure that when they have their, when we do have our reform of cannabis here, that we understand just how much of an impact it's had within our police system, not just policing in the police force, like you said, in schools, our stop and searching within any type of racist policing. I'm sure you've heard of Release, who are doing fantastic work, (laughs) absolutely incredible work. They've got their report, which I'd encourage people to read about UK cannabis reform and opening up this conversation into this this wider approach is, is definitely, definitely needed. So an area which, again, the UK really falls behind on, really we are well behind other countries is overdose prevention centres. There have been some work by Peter Criken in Scotland setting up an informal overdose prevention centre in an ambulance. But apart from that, we've not got a formal one yet in the UK. How have the DPA advocated for overdose prevention centres? How did you manage to change that narrative to get people to support them? We're still getting people to support them. It is not, we are not at the end. The fight's not over, no. The fight is not over. We're in the middle of the fight. We got a couple of hits in, you know, when we're, we're bloodied, but unbowed, you know, like I, but we are still pushing and it's still very much a fight. We have growing support for overdose prevention centers. We have two sanctioned sites in New York City, we have many more underground sites that we're really hoping to bring above board. I mean, DPA does not have unsanctioned sites, but we know people are like doing what they need to to keep their communities safe. And I think a lot of it is education. A lot of times we're like talking to people about what is, why are people overdosing the poison, the, the drug supply that is being contaminated with fentanyl, which is a faster acting opioid. The fact that people don't have access to medications like methadone or buprenorphine, the fact that people don't have access to doctors who are willing to see them because of stigma, the fact that don't people don't understand how to cite an overdose or they don't have access to Narcan. These are all things that we're spending a lot of time with our partners doing. We're also having conversations about at the federal level the Department of Justice is is working on a legal case with a local community that is trying to open one up. We've been providing support to our allies there. We're writing legislation in multiple states so that states can sanction these things as we wait for the federal government. I think it's a lot of conversation about how are we having conversations with people? What are we looking for? What are the fears that people have? This is a battle for hearts and minds. This is, you know, oftentimes I tell people like the law is not the end goal. The culture change is the end goal because laws can change back. Laws are at the whims of whoever's in charge. But if the community decides that that is not how they want the social contract to be about something, that is durable. That is power building. And so 
we are still very much in the midst of building our power amongst people that use drugs, amongst people that have loved ones who use drugs, amongst people who care about overdose. We're building power in the States currently to get to a place where the laws are basically the cherry on top because we as a society have decided having over 100,000 overdose deaths is unacceptable. And that we can have, we can create a safe supply for people who need it. And we can create places for people to use drugs under supervision, either of people, of other people who use drugs, either of medical staff, that we can create the conditions necessary to keep our communities alive. And so with safe supply, would you ideally like to have this through a regulated market and the option as well for drug checking or drug testing available in facilities? We would like a safe supply because we think that's most urgent right now in order for people who are using drugs and getting their drugs off the street. We want to be able for people to be able to check their drugs so that they can have the information that they need to mitigate the risk associated with a, with a street supply. We'd love for safe supply to be available for people. We'd love for things like heroin assisted treatment or Dilaudid treatment to be available for people. And then I think there's the, how do we build the pathway to regulating all drugs? I don't think it's an either and, I think it's both and we need both. You know, safe supply for us is, is a strategy to deal with the acute issue that is at hand for us currently. And so thinking about them wrapping up, if you had to give a message to some younger <laughs> drug policy activists and advocates out there, what would be your message you'd give to them? Drug policy is about drugs and it's not about drugs too. And the not about drugs means we need to be building power for the people that have been cast aside, dehumanized and are not with us anymore or are struggling to be with us. How are we offering support? How are we building their capacity? How are we taking their leadership? And how are we building power to build the bridge to the better world? In a free society, drug prohibition would not exist. And if we want to get there, we, ha we have a lot of work to do that includes changing the culture, hearts and minds. I think oftentimes people are like, this is, tell us how to pass a bill. And I'm like, Cannabis arrests went down tremendously in New York City before we ever passed the bill. Went down at least 85% before we even passed the bill. The bill is not the thing that you want, the ultimate thing that you want. The ultimate thing that you want is for society to say that the way that we treat people, the way that we do things, the way that we enforce drug laws is not how we want to move forward together anymore. And we want to do something different. Go after power. That is my message to young policy reformers. Go after power. That's a fantastic message. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Cassandra. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in London. A huge, huge thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs>